0: It has been said that music is the language of the soul. And more than a few of us could testify that sometimes only a song can lift our spirits. That sometimes it's a particular song that can soothe the anxiety of our disposition. This morning we continue in our study of the life of David in a sermon series that's simply entitled Chasing God's Heart. This morning, we focus on one of David's songs. Yes, David was a skilled warrior, but he was also a masterful musician. The particular song that we are going to consider this morning was one written by David in one of the most stressful times of his life. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to Psalm 57. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. Psalm 57, I'll begin reading at verse 1. I'll conclude at verse 11. Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high. To God who fulfills his purpose for me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. He sends his love and his faithfulness. I'm in the midst of lions. Uh, I, I lie among ravenous beasts. Men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love reaching to the heavens Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. This is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Following his decisive defeat of the giant named Goliath, David rose in popularity and prominence all throughout Israel. Anything David did, it seemed to turn out with success. This success was noticed even by King Saul. So he declared unto David, captain of my bodyguard. He gave David a thousand men under his command. He sent David on many significant military campaigns. The popularity and the respect of David began to skyrocket in the royal household. He developed a genuine, real friendship with the son of the king named Jonathan. David even became part of the family because King Saul gave one of his daughters in marriage to David. Life was going well. Everything was fantastic. And as long as the song of Saul was topping the charts. Everything was fine. But then the people in the streets they began singing David's tune. Repeatedly in scripture we hear that in the streets people are singing and declaring and dancing that Saul has slain his thousands but David his tens of thousands. Every time Saul heard that rendition he became insanely jealous. On numerous occasions when Saul called David in to play his harp hoping to soothe the tormented mind of the king, King Saul would grab a javelin or a spear. He would think to himself, I'm going to pin that boy against the wall. And several times this wacky king actually threw a javelin in the direction of David. Had David not been so nimble, I suspect he would not have been able to elude the assassination attempts of the flying spear. It didn't take very long for David's wife to encourage him to leave the premises. And even his best friend Jonathan told him, you better get out of the way of my mad, angry dad. And so David had to run. He couldn't go to the authorities. They were on the payroll of the king. He couldn't go back to his own house because that would put his family members in danger. So David began to run. Literally, he was fleeing for his life. He went to the desert, the wilderness area. And according to 1 Samuel chapter 22, he hid in a cave outside the city of Adullam. Can you even begin to fathom the feelings of David? I mean, his story really is a rags to riches story. He was born, no place, a very insignificant small town of Bethlehem. He was the youngest of eight sons. He was the runt of the family. He was the one that had the task of going out to watch the flock of his father, Jesse. He had the job that nobody wanted. He had the task that was reserved for the youngest of the family. You can imagine his shock when one day a servant came out into the field and said, you need to come back to the house. Your father has requested your presence. By the time David got to the house, he could hear the commotion. He could see all the chariots. They, not only his family were there, but also the elders of the town. And also the mighty prophet Samuel. When David walked in, He was intimidated by the sight of all the important people that had gathered around. And then the mighty prophet Samuel uh, strode up to him and began to anoint and appoint him as the next king of Israel. All the while, the existing king was still sitting on his throne. David didn't quite know what to make out of all of this. You fast forward just a few years and Jesse is getting older and up in age and Israel's at war against the Philistines. And Jesse says to his youngest son, David, I want you to go and take these supplies to the soldiers check out the war, check on your older brothers, come back and bring me a good report. By the time he gets there, he hears the battle cry. He goes to the top of the mountain where Israel is camped. He overlooks and that's where he sees that Philistine champion from Gath, the giant of a man named Goliath. Goliath came and he issued his same challenge in defiance. Choose a man to come and fight me. If you win, we'll be your servants. If I win, you'll be our servants. And when Goliath declared this, all the best and brightest of Israel began to scatter in fear. It was only David that recognized Goliath as a leftover giant. It was only David who remembered the promises of God and made good on those promises. For he declared that God will give the victory. And David took a sling and a stone to a sword fight. And David was given the victory by God. And all he had was a sling made out of wood and a stone in his pouch. And yet that was all that was needed. And God gave the victory. Oh, can you imagine as David rose in popularity and prominence now, he is welcomed in the palace. Now, at any time, he gains an audience with King Saul. Now, he's part of the family. He has a wife who's who's a descendant of Saul. I mean, everything is going well until King Saul becomes King Psychopath. And then after a while... It didn't take very many spears and arrows for him to realize, I got to get out of here. And he runs for his life. You could make the argument that uh, David didn't deserve this. I mean, he didn't see it coming. He was doing what God was calling him to do, and it was getting him in trouble. And now, literally, Life is upside down, topsy turvy. He is running for his life. He goes into a cave. He's between a rock and a hard place. This cave has one entrance, and that one entrance is its only exit. Literally, he's backed in a corner. And I guess that David could have responded in fear, I guess he could have been depressed. He could have been angry, but it seems that he responds in faith. what I just told you is the backstory of Psalm 57. The backstory is given to us in 1 Samuel chapter 22. and it's, it's there in that cave in Adullam that, that David finds himself, and, and he responds he responds in faith. It's David who says, "I will take." Shelter or refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster passes. This reference of taking shelter or refuge in the shadow of God's wings, I think, is a reference to the cherubim that sit atop the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, those winged creatures that are encased in gold and their wings are outstretched. It's the, it's the mercy seat. It's the golden lid of the Ark of the Covenant. At that time, it was housed in Jerusalem, in the temple, in the most holy place in the temple, the Holy of Holies. And when David is saying that I will take refuge and shelter in the shadow of your wings, what he's saying is I acknowledge that geographically I am far from Jerusalem and geographically I am far from the temple and I am nowhere close to the Holy of Holies and yet I am not outside your presence. Oh, David understands that even though he's in a cave, he's never outside the jurisdiction of God that God's presence is with him. And the only way that his experience becomes bearable is the reality that God's presence accompanies him. He may not physically be in Jerusalem, and David may not be at the temple, and he's not there in the Holy of Holies, but God of all gods is with him. And so David says, I will take refuge and shelter in the shadow of your wings until this disaster passes. Friend, it may be at this point that this story intersects where you live. Maybe you know what it is to be a cave dweller. Maybe you have a story similar to David in the sense that it's kind of a rags to riches story. You weren't born anyplace popular. Uh, You weren't anything real significant, Uh, yet you have been blessed by God and, and you've been in decent places and you've had a good education, you've got a good job, you've got a family, you've got a spouse, you've got some children, maybe you have some grandchildren, you're in a pretty good season of life and then something happens and everything gets turned upside down and you find yourself running, running for your life so to speak and maybe you know what it is to be a cave dweller. Maybe you know what it is for the boss to call you into his office after 23 years of faithful service to the company, only to have him look at you and say, your services are no longer needed. Now, you're a cave dweller. You did everything that the doctor told you to do, but now the cancer's back and you are a cave dweller. The one thing that you and your spouse wanted more than anything else was to have a child. Yet every month, your hopes are dashed in disappointment. And you wonder why this one dream seems to elude you. And friend, you are now a cave dweller. Or maybe you stand up for Christ at school, but it's not really in vogue. Because now, you're the object of ridicule. You're the punchline of all their jokes now you're a cave dweller. Or maybe your spouse, after more than a quarter of a century of marriage, sits you down only to tell you, I don't love you anymore. There's somebody else. And now, without knowing it, you're a cave dweller. Or maybe you, you practiced and you tried and you did your best and you rehearsed, you went into the audition. And you didn't get the part. And now, you find yourself as a cave dweller. Do you know what it is to be a cave dweller? You know what it is to to have your life turned upside down? The one thing that you want seems to be the one thing that eludes you. That everything is just ripped to shreds. and, And everything is not going the way that you had planned. Or the way it used to be just moments ago, days ago, months ago. Do you know what it is to be a cave dweller? David knew what it was. And David responds not in fear, not in anger, not in depression. David responds in faith. I will take shelter and refuge in the shadow of your wings until this disaster passes by. What is David saying? David's saying is that that this is a choice that I have to make. It's not something that comes naturally. In fact, what comes naturally is fear. What comes naturally is anger. What comes naturally is resentment. But David says, no, I'm not going to have any of those things. I am going to choose to trust you. I'm going to choose to take shelter in the shadow of your wings because I know that what I'm going through right now will not last forever. It will pass by. Did you catch that? It will pass by. You're not going to dwell in the cave forever. It's just a visiting spot. You just occasionally go there. And David says, this disaster, whatever it is right now that you're going through, this disaster, it will pass by. So in verse 3, he praises God for his love and his faithfulness that comes down from the heavens. Once again, if you read Psalm 57 and 1 Samuel 22, side by side, you'll discover that the way God cascaded his love and faithfulness upon David, it was personified in the arrival of friends and family who made their way to that cave. Before David gets out of the cave, he's got a small army of 400 troops. Now, to me, this is mind-boggling. How did they find David? David. David is in a desert. He's in a cave. Saul and 3,000 of his best soldiers are looking for David. And before Saul and 3,000 of the best soldiers can find David, David is found by God's love and faithfulness, which is personified by friends and family and other soldiers and troops who say, David, I will fight with you, alongside you, I'll fight for you. How do you explain that? This isn't a day before Navigation system or smartphones. This isn't a day be- before GPS or the Waze app. I mean, this isn't a day before any of those kind of things. How did they find David? If you read the story in 1 Samuel 22, simply because God ordered their steps. That's it. God ordered their steps. And he sent his love. He sent his faithfulness in the people of those who loved David as friends and family and those who were willing to take a bullet for David and to fight alongside him. You know, sometimes the way God personifies love in your life and the way he personifies his faithfulness in your life is that when you find yourself as a cave dweller, you look up and there's some friends and family members that come right alongside you. How did you even know I was here? The Lord told me. I I don't know what you're going through, I don't know what you're experiencing, but I just think you needed a phone call today. I just think I needed to send you a text today. I just just felt impressed to come and visit you today. God sends his love and his faithfulness and it's personified many times by our friends and our families that come and get down in the cave with us. And then there are some people that come alongside and they say, I'll fight with you. I'm not going to fight against you. I'm going to fight with you and I will, I will take the sword for you and I'll be right beside you and together we'll get out of this cave. You have some friends like that. David had friends like that. People that were drawn to him by the Lord. In verses four and six, David then describes the enemy. I love the fact that he describes friends first and then the enemy. He describes God's love first and then he describes the enemies that he was facing. You know, sometimes we get in a situation and all we can see are the enemies. All we can see is that we're going up against. Verses 4 and 6, he calls them ravenous beasts. Their teeth are like spears and arrows. They set up a pit, but David says, I do not fall into it. But God, you, you're in charge of all things. And they set up a pit for me, but they're the ones that fall into it. So he says in verse 7, my heart is steadfast upon God. I love that word, steadfast. In the Hebrew language, the word steadfast, it means established, firm, stable, long-lasting. He says, my heart has been steadied upon God you. Once again, friend, I think this is a willful decision that David makes. I don't think it comes naturally. I don't think that he just, uh, you know, got to the point where I just can't help it. I'm just steadfast upon the Lord. No, he made the decision to trust in the one who's trustworthy. He made the decision to be steadfast upon God. I want you to notice that in Psalm 57, David changed his cave into a cathedral. He saw his problems as an opportunity to praise the Lord. He was not overwhelmed by his surroundings. His focus was on his savior of the surroundings. All of that is a choice that David made. All of that is a choice that you and I can make when we find ourselves dwelling in a cave of discomfort and disaster. David says, my heart is steadfast upon you, O God. This is... Amazingly profound to me. Because uh, David is, is telling us that this is something that he is desiring to do even when life is falling apart. Like me, you may know a lot of people who are faithful only when life is going well. They're full of faith when the bank account is fat, when The children are obedient when the test exam comes back clean and clear. When those things happen, people are full of faith. Thank you, Jesus. We love the Lord. But some of those same people don't respond faithfully. They respond fearfully when the bottom line is weak or when the children are acting like a fool or when the health is fleeting. And David says, When I'm here dwelling in this cave, my heart is steadfast. It's one thing to be steadfast upon the Lord when everything's going your way. It's another thing when life is coming against you for you to choose to be steadfast upon the Lord. For you to be steady and secure and long-lasting upon him. You know, all throughout this series we've been trying to answer the question, what does a God chaser look like? What does it look like to be a man or woman who chases after the heart of God? And it seems that every week I give you a little nugget or I give you a little definition or a description of what it is to be a God chaser. And what I try to do is base it on that given passage. Well, in this passage of Psalm 57, I think that a man or a woman who chases after God's heart steadfastly believes that surroundings cannot shake the heart surrendered to the Savior. I think that's a God chaser. It's a man or woman who steadfastly believes that surroundings cannot shake the heart surrendered to the Savior. This is a steadfast heart, not a worldly heart. A worldly heart doesn't understand a steadfast heart A worldly heart will worry when things aren't going well. A steadfast heart will worship when things aren't going well. A worldly heart will only look at the problems, yet a steadfast heart will see these problems as an opportunity of praise. A worldly heart will will wring its hands when it dwells in a cave, yet a steadfast heart will see a cave as a cathedral of praise unto the Lord. A person who chases after God's heart, Is a person who steadfastly believes that surroundings cannot shake the heart surrendered to the Savior. So when you have a steadfast heart, what does that look like? Well, in verse 8, David says, I awaken the dawn. He doesn't say, I wake up at dawn. He says, I awaken the dawn. And he awakens the dawn with a song of praise. He awakens the dawn with worship. Oh, my friend, do any of you sing in the morning? Do any of you wake up singing? If you're anything like me, uh, you only want to sing when nobody else is listening. So I choose times to sing when I know nobody else is listening. When I'm driving in a car all by myself, great time to worship. Early in the morning, when nobody else is up, and I'm the first one to begin to get ready. That's a great time to have a song in my spirit. It doesn't always have to be loud. The lyrics don't have to be boisterous. But sometimes just a song sets the mind for the day and it sets the heart steadfastly upon the Lord. David says a steadfast heart wakes the dawn. It's not awakened by the dawn, but... The steadfast heart awakens the dawn. As if to say, whatever this day holds, I am ready. Not because of who I am, but because of who I belong to. Because of my Savior. And regardless of my circumstances, regardless of my setting, regardless of my circumstances, I will not be shaken. Because my heart is surrendered unto the Savior. So in verse 8, David says that he will awaken the dawn. In verse 9... He says that he will praise God among the nations. Today is Mission Sunday. We're asking the question, who are you trying to reach? Where are you going to go in 2020? Where are you going to take the gospel? Across the street, around the world? Do a one-day trip, a weekend trip, a two-week trip? Are you going to go in the states? Are you going to go outside the states? Are you going to stay right here in Shelby County? Regardless, you answer all those questions. But at the end of the day, why do we do this? We do this so we can proclaim to the nations, there is a God. And this God loves us and loves you. And this God who loves you sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sins so that you could have a steadfast heart independent of the surroundings that are all around you. So so we go and we tell just like David did because he had a steadfast heart. He proclaimed to the nations, there is a God. That's what we do with a steadfast heart. Then he gets to verse 10 and David just lifts up love and faithfulness that reaches unto the heavens. The psalm has now come full circle. In verse three, God's love and faithfulness reached down to David. In verse 10, The love and faithfulness he now lifts up unto the Lord. It's a psalm that's come full circle. That's what happens when you have a steadfast heart. You may be a cave dweller, but you don't have to be angry about it. You don't have to be resentful about it. You don't have to be depressed or distressed about it. You don't have to be fearful about it. You can be steady about it. Because uh, a person who chases the heart of God steadfastly believes that surroundings do not shake, the heart surrendered unto the Savior. Psalm 57 is made up of two stanzas, verses 1 to 4 and then verses 6 to 10. And then verse 5 and verse 11, we find a repeated refrain. Did you catch that? Verse 5 says the very same thing that verse 11 says. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. What is David declaring? He is saying that nothing can diminish the glory of God. Nothing can diminish it. Because God's glory is on display over all the earth. So nothing can diminish God's glory. There is no cave that can diminish God's glory. There is no situation that can diminish God's glory. There is no surrounding that can diminish God's glory. There is no amount of troops that can diminish God's glory. There is no wacko king that can diminish God's glory. Let's put it in our context. There is no cancer or sickness that can diminish God's glory. There's no unemployment that can diminish God's glory. There's no prodigal son or daughter that can diminish God's glory. There's no difficulty or disappointment in your life that can diminish God's glory. God's glory is established over all the earth. So there is no cave, no castle, no cathedral that can diminish the glory of God. And David knew what it was to live in a castle. He knew what it was to visit a cathedral. He knew what it was to be in a cave. And maybe like David, you know what it is to be on top of the world, You know what it is to have the world on top of you. You know what it is to be somewhere between a castle and a cave. And I this morning just came to tell you that nothing that you're experiencing, as fleeting as it is, as long-lasting as it appears, nothing that you're experiencing can diminish the glory of God in your life or over the earth. And can I add one more? Not even a cross, can diminish the glory of God. For about a thousand years after David, there will come a descendant of David, the God-man. This God-man will come and, and he will take upon himself the heavy weight of your sin and my sin and this God-man will stumble and stagger through the streets of Jerusalem. He will bear your cross upon his back. He will climb up the skull-shaped hill called Golgotha, and there he'll be stretched wide. He will dangle precariously on a cross made of wood between two thieves, and in the first century, there was nothing more shameful than dangling on a cross made of wood. This was shameful this was despicable this was a horrendous way to die and yet my friends with Jesus on that cross there is no way that the glory of God could be diminished in fact while we were yet sinners Christ died for us and while Jesus was hanging on the cross, God was reconciling a world of all sinners unto himself. God the Father was working behind the scenes so that the innocent one was declared guilty so you and I who are guilty may be declared innocent in God's sight. A great swap of salvation took place at Calvary where we heap upon Jesus all of our sins, past, present, and future. And he gives upon us his innocent righteousness as if we live the perfect life of Christ every day for all of eternity. And all this took place because not even a despicable cross can diminish the glory of God. And I do need to add one other thing. That this God-man named Jesus, who went to the cross so that the blessed one was bruised, The eternal one was executed. The anointed one was assassinated. The Christ was crucified. That Jesus went to the cross. And after he died, they took his body and they placed Jesus in a cave. But Jesus only stayed in that cave for three days. The tomb is borrowed because Jesus had every intention of giving it back. And on the third day, God the Father raised God the Son by the power of God the Spirit. And Jesus rose victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And Jesus is alive. The proclamation of that cross declares to each and every one of us that cave dwellers can become Christ followers. You don't have to stay in the cave, you don't have to stay in your dilemma. Whatever you're experiencing right now, which seems so dark, so lonely, so eternal, it is passing by. And you were not created to dwell in a cave. You were created to be a Christ follower. You say, but pastor, how do I do that? How do I go from being a cave dweller to a Christ follower? You give him your heart. That heart symbolic of everything that you have, all your hopes and dreams, all your fears and failures. You give him all that you are. And every heart God receives, he transforms into a steady heart, a steadfast heart. Because God, who chases after us, longs to be chased after. And we who are God chasers, we steadfastly believe That surroundings cannot shake the heart surrendered to the Savior. So this morning, give your heart to Christ. Maybe today you have never trusted Jesus fully as Savior. Today can be the day of your salvation. As soon as we sing, you come, take one of the ministers by the hand. But maybe you say, Pastor, uh, I am a Christ follower and I have been in this cave for far too long. Oh, friend, I want you to know, you may feel like you're alone, but you are not by yourself. Because God sends his love and faithfulness to you. And Jesus died on the cross to take all the pain of your cave dwelling away so that you could be a Christ follower. Maybe this morning you need to come and kneel here at the altar and pray. Perhaps you need to come and join this faith family, regardless of whatever you need to do today, today, before you walk out of this sanctuary, today. Be steadfast in your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. Oh, Lord, we pray that you will capture our attention, set our affection upon you. If somebody's in need of salvation, let it be today. Open up eyes unto understanding. Father, if there's somebody here who's dwelling in a cave, help them to come and find comfort in the shadow of your wings. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.